Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Ed here. Welcome to Digital Voices. Hey, new category for us, finally, talking about clinical trials and really important topic and important work that clinical trials makes in our lives, whether we know it today or in the future. So, so, so excited uh, to talk to you today. We have the executive medical director for Mary Crowley Cancer Research, Dr. Minol Barv, uh, Barves, uh, welcome. Thank you. Sorry, I'm like, I struggle with names all the time. And I, I, I'm pretty close, was I pretty close there? You got my first name right, yeah. which is great. Uh, but last name is Barve. So okay, Barve. All right. So there, there we have it. I want to make sure I'm super respectful of people's names. Um, but sometimes I struggle a little bit with it. Um, but before we get kicked off, uh, DJ Megan, have you, a family or friend, encountered cancer? I've been really, really lucky in, um, in my family. My, my dad had stomach cancer um, a couple of times, um, but it was treatable, curable. Um, it really didn't impact our lives um, that that I was aware of. I was also really young, so you know my parents might have kept a lot of stuff from me. Um, but that's that's it. Yeah, that's good, right? You know, it's not something that you want to uh, be affirmative with. But the fact is that all of us, at some point, unfortunately, are touched by cancer, and that's why I'm so proud to be on the board of Mary Crowley Cancer Research, but I'm going to save that uh, for uh, for our guests to talk a little bit more about. So I'm trying to think when we first met, I think it was at Mary Crowley. So I came onto the board maybe, you know, maybe it was uh, six months ago. And uh, of course, you were one of the first people I met because you're the executive medical director leading a lot of important uh, research uh, there and also your own practice and and so I was like, oh, I really want to have you on our on our podcast because, you know, what you do is so critical uh, to ensuring that people like uh, Megan's dad have this uneventful episode episode with cancer. And uh, so I think that's when we first met. So everyone always likes to know as we start into this program, sort of a little bit about you. So uh, what kind of music do you like to listen to? Uh, so uh, I, of course, like Bollywood music, <laughs> and I also like, uh, you know, in the 80s, so I like ABBA, I like Bonnie M, I like, uh, uh, you know, I like Michael Jackson, I, you know, um, I like Eagles, you know, I I like a little bit of everything. Yeah, so. that's cool. Um, yeah, so you mentioned Bollywood, so uh, maybe you'll cover it a little bit in your background, but you're originally from a different country. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I was um, born and uh, brought up in India, and I grew up in a small town, um, which was on the national highway between two major cities, Mumbai or Bombay, as it used to be called back then, and Pune, which is another big, uh, that's where, you know, the COVID vaccines are now made. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's where the, uh, obviously, the Bollywood uh, music connection comes in. So what about a life message or mantra? Is there uh, something, are there words that guide you? Um, I, I love to work. I I, I, re, I really like to work. I like to help people. And uh, that 
that's that's kind of my mantra for the day. So I, I I just love helping people. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. You do such a great job of it in your in your role as a clinician. Can you tell us your story, like personal or professional, however far back you want? You can start in India if you want, or how you got to the United States, or your how you chose to become a doctor, whatever you'd like to share with us. Sure, sure. So I, I'll start back with my birth, I guess. I uh, my uh, my parents are both. Uh, my dad passed away, but my parents are both were both family physicians. And as I mentioned, we you know we lived in a small town. At that time, they were the only, the only physicians in town. And um, so my so the my mom's OB was in Mumbai, which is about a two-hour drive from our town. And um, when she went into labor with me, my dad said, you know, he'll, he'll take care of the older sister, you know, drop her off to some friends to take her to school, and then he'll take my mom to Mumbai. Um, but before he could arrange for all that, you know, I was in a hurry, and um, I. I I basically was born before he got back home. Uh, so my parents had their own, we called it nursing home back then, but it's like a small hospital, small maternity home. And we had a midwife, you know, so the midwife delivered uh, my mom. And, uh, and you know, I've, I, so I was in rush then and I've been in rush ever since. <laughs> but uh, what I want to tell you is that, so that same day, uh, the her, my mom's GYN happened to be dri- driving through town and he stopped to check on my mom. And then I was already born. She had like big tears. So he sutured her up. And that same afternoon, there was another lady who went into labor and she insisted that my mom deliver her and not the midwife. <laughs> so my mom did. <laughs> so wow. <I> was- <laughs> so- and delivered in the same day. The same day. So the women who have had babies will appreciate, uh, you know, what kind of uh, tolerance she has to do that. So that's kind of the work ethics I was brought up with, just to give you a glimpse. And that's my parents. My dad, you know, we we lived in that small town, but there were many neighboring villages that those patients used to come to us. But if someone was too sick and, you know, couldn't make it to our clinic, then my dad used to have a motorcycle uh, bullet and field for the motorcycle fans. They will know it's a very classic bike. Yeah. It has a very, uh, so he used to take the bike, but there were areas where even the bike wouldn't go. You know, the dirt road would be so bad. So he would stop the bike and then walk for miles with those old doctor bags that you only see in movies now. <laughs> you know, right. and, and used to take care of patients, you know, and there was never any, um, you know, uh, expectation of any uh, compensation, you know, for, uh, you know, so they just did whatever had to be done. Uh, so I've kind of grown up with that ethic. So I think that's ingrained in me. Yeah. So, and where did you go to medical school? Were you still in India or had you come over to the United States? No, I went to med school. So that's another story that I'm a big, um, very grateful to my father. So in, in India, you know, we have to make, at least back then it's changed now, but you had to make the decision uh, like at the age of 16 or 17, whether, you know, which profession you're going to choose. And um, so most, you know, smart girls used to go into medicine and hardly anybody used to go into engineering. And I thought it would be cool for me to go into engineering. I had equal grades in math and biology. Um, but my dad, who was paying for my education, said, no, you're going into medicine. <laughs> and he forced me into med school. But I have never looked back. From day one, I just I just absolutely loved it. Um, I, I was at the top of my class. I was a valedictorian. I, you know, I, I really did. I, I really loved it. So, uh, and, and then as soon as I graduated, I got engaged uh, to be married to my husband who, it was an arranged marriage. 
uh, and he he has already he was in Dallas. He's been in Dallas since 1984. He went to UT Arlington, and, um, and so I graduated in 93 February, exactly 30 years ago, actually today. And um, I, I got married in December of 93, moved to Dallas in January 94, and basically have been here since then. So I did my residency at Presbyterian, where I practice currently, uh, fellowship at Baylor downtown Dallas. And then have been with Texas Oncology since 2004. Uh, and I started at Mary Crowley's in 2005, uh, uh, initially just as a sub-investigator, as we call it. And then over the years, my role has evolved to where now I'm the medical director. Yeah, it's very cool. And we'll jump right into Mary Crowley in a second. But yeah, a lot of a lot of connects uh, between you and I, because I don't think people understand, you know, especially in the United States, how rural parts of India, you know, where your parents served and like, like to get to where my, so the motorcycle wouldn't have reached my wife's village either because they had to cross a, a river on in a basket that you had a wire that you pulled each other across. Um, so yeah, so delivering healthcare is, is much, much different back then. And then, uh, yeah, so I was with Texas Health for a long time. So Presby, uh, you and I probably crossed paths years ago <laughs> and didn't, didn't really know it and, until now. But yeah, let's let's switch and talk about Mary Crowley Cancer Research and can you share sort of the vision and mission of, well, I'll, I'll just refer to it as Mary Crowley. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, uh, the vision of Mary Crowley is really to bring hope, you know, to cancer patients, you know, and at the same time, we want to uh, like make advances in the science and breakthrough to where we can help all cancer patients, you know, not just the ones that we are treating. And uh, that has been the mission. And that really aligns very well with my personal uh, mission. And, you know, that's uh, why I enjoy working there uh, so much, even though it's, you know, it's many, many hours of work, but it's just a very rewarding work. And over the years, we have been able to actually bring, you know, uh, over 20 drugs, it's counting, you know, just in the last year, we have had two or three approvals, uh, uh, FDA approvals for drugs that we have studied. So uh, uh, we do phase one clinical trials primarily, though some phase two. So these are drugs that are very, very early in development. Many of them we study for the first time uh, in human beings. Uh, but the, the advantages of now being even in first in humans is that the trial design, the, the design of the drugs has improved so much over the years uh, that I can't tell you how many patients I have. In fact, I saw her two weeks ago. So she was first in humans, She probably the 12th patient on the study. And uh, within her like six cycles, so approximately four months, her cancer has completely gone. So this is, so that's the kind of, you know, story I get to tell. So. Uh, yeah, that, that's so great. Yeah. And that's one of the things that drew me also to Mary Crowley is uh, hope lives here. Yes. Um, and, you know, that's the best mission statement I've ever heard, you know, three mm -hmm. words and it's so direct. And that's a great example of what you just shared. Yeah. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but since you already talked about phase one, so there's multiple phases. So for people who aren't familiar. So most of the audience are CIOs and chief digital officers. They're familiar with the concept of clinical trials, but don't engage too much uh, with them. Uh, but there's multiple phases and you talked about phase one. Uh, can you talk about the, the different phases of, of clinical trials and what makes phase one, you know, sort of special? So uh, so phase one is when a drug is being studied for the very first time in human beings. That's a phase one. So either it's a brand new drug by itself or it's a, 
uh, you know, sometimes it's a phase one where one drug is already on the market, but the second drug is new. But in any case, there is one brand new drug or the combination is being studied for the very first time in human beings. So that's a phase one. And phase one is a very small number of patients, you know, anywhere from five to 15, uh, depending on, you know, the idea is to talk to see if the drug is safe to administer and then what are the doses in which, you know, the patients can tolerate the drug. And uh, if they find that, yes, it is safe and it is showing some level of activity, then it goes to phase two, which is where they're looking at more specific tumor types. And also, they, you know, they'll study anywhere from 20 to 50 patients in phase two. So in both phase one and phase two, usually there is no placebo involved. Like all the patients get the drug. Uh, but what we are trying to tweak is the dosages of the drugs, and we are really learning the toxicity of the drugs. So those are phase one and two studies. And then once a drug looks good in phase two, then it goes to a phase three where there is a comparator arm. So half the patients get one type of treatment and half the patients get a second type of treatment. And then the idea is to see, is A better than B? And if A is better than B, then the FDA approves it and then it becomes available to the public. And occasionally there are phase four studies which are after marketing. So that is those FDA requires, they will approve a drug, but it's in conditional approval where the company, the manufacturer has to continue to study the drug and make sure that it is safe. And occasionally, you know, in a phase four, if the drug doesn't show as much promise as it did in phase three, then the FDA will take away their approval. So those are no, so we do phase one and two primarily. And so the phase one, so if you're a patient of phase one, uh, clearly you're uh, in a more acute situation, correct? You're, you know, you can't wait for the phase four to have gone through these other phases. No. Are, this is it. Uh, so phase one is usually done for patients who don't have any standard, you know, curative options. Um, uh, but as I mentioned to you earlier, even even if you have a certain mutation, if you have a certain driver mutation, even though there may be standard approved treatment for that type of cancer, uh, honestly, today the likelihood of a targeted drug working is going to be so much better than even any approved standard chemotherapy. Yeah. So just because it's a phase one, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean that it's the last resort. Sometimes it's the best resort. Yeah, no, that's, okay. good. that's good clarification. And so let's talk about the role of the executive medical director. So uh, it's pretty cool. You know, it's uh, Mary Crowley and you're the uh, medical director. What, what sort of roles and responsibilities, you know, what does that mean at the end of the day? I don't know where to start because it's a very, <laughs> it's a very broad, <laughs> it's a very big hat that I wear. Um, so, uh, um, of course, you know, we have about six other um, uh, physicians and uh, currently two, uh, uh, you know, we call them APPs or, you know, uh, so nurse practitioner and a PA. And uh, so I kind of oversee them and kind of help them. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, and then management of the clinic. But uh, just to give you an idea, I am also the PI. PI stands for Principal Investigator of a, of a Study at our site. So uh, every clinical trial, uh, you know, that we have at Mary Crowley will have a PI. Uh, and so currently we have about 100 uh, clinical studies out of which about 68 uh, uh, are 
have me as a PI. Um, so, so that, that, that's, that's the big thing that I do. Plus I oversee, you know, the management of all the patients that are on treatment. I reach out to the referring physicians, you know, I get, you know, calls, emails, texts all day long with, you know, oncologists asking me, Hey, I have this patient. Do you have a trial for them? You know, so I respond back to them. If, if they do, then, you know, I bring them in. If they're not eligible, then I try not to waste anybody's time. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> then I have to reach out to the sponsors to, um, you know, like if, if there is a drug that I feel is very promising and we want to bring that trial to us, then we reach out to the sponsors, meet with them and see if they would be interested in working with us. So that is another role that I play. Yeah. Like you said, it's a very broad role. You're doing a lot of things. Plus you're actually delivering a lot of the care and doing the research. Um, you mentioned the word sponsor. Can you share with us what some examples of what a sponsor is? I mean, obviously I know, but for our audience. It's- uh, so sponsor would be like big pharma all the way. So we have trials from Merck and Sanofi and AbbVie and all the Bristol Myers and the big names uh, to very small biotechs and startups. So uh, so there are, you know, these clinician scientists who have an idea and a concept and they develop a drug and that they want to uh, take, you know, move forwards with. So uh, so they're starting doing these brand new studies. So, so the sponsor for us is a company that has a product that they want to test. That is a sponsor and can be a biotech to a big pharma. Yeah. And in terms of uh, just for the audience, the, the quality and the metrics are, are just like you would see at any uh, hospital or routine hospital. So I sit in on all these meetings and there's a lot of uh, patient safety, quality, all the same rigor. I mean, it's a very rigorous process. Yeah, yeah, it is extremely rigorous. And of course, you know, we are a mo- uh, like every sponsor, you know, monitors us. So they come, so they send out these uh, external, um, so to, to back up. So there's a sponsor and then there's something called a CRO, which is clinical research operations team. So they are, they are kind of the middleman, if you will. So they come and like every patient that I enroll, they come and see that was, did we put the right patient on? Are we doing the right things for the patient? You know, and if, if you're not doing anything, then, you know, we get reported. So it is very quality controlled. Yeah. So every six weeks, every study will send out a person to check on us, so to speak. So not to oversimplify, but all the drugs that we might take routinely today that are bringing healing to us and our patients at some point started off it, Absolutely. Yeah, yes. In a trial. And that's why this is so important, right? To our whole health ecosystem globally is to, in a safe way, uh, bring forward new discoveries. Uh, and that's what Mary Crowley does and brings hope like we shared. Um, so do you think there are enough clinical trials today, uh, in the world? Uh, you know, do we, are we out of capacity? Should we be doing more generally speaking? No, I think at least in the oncology, I can only speak to the oncology world. Uh, but I, yeah, I do feel that there are, uh, there are, I mean, there are a lot of options. The The only issue becomes um, is the eligibility restriction that, the, but the FDA imposes that for safety reasons. So we, we have a lot of trials, unfortunately, a lot of the patients don't are not eligible for those trials for one reason or another. Yeah, and that's always a conundrum for for everyone, not just Mary Crowley, but we have drugs ready to trial, but it's how do you let patients and providers know that there are these opportunities, right? And that's a struggle I think for everyone in the clinical trial community. 
Right. So that, um, uh, you know, so I, I do feel that, you know, probably the tech companies can, you know, could probably help us with that, you know, uh, in, um, in terms of identifying, you know, the matching, you know, to identify the patient to the trial. You know, I wish that, I mean, now almost every practice has EMR, but our EMR, unfortunately, is not sophisticated enough yet to do, do this matching. And I really, I mean, I know there are a lot of people in the background working on this, but it's not quite ready for prime time. Um, but that would really change the trial enrollment once that can that mechanism gets going. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure. I, like you said, I think the solutions are there already today. There can be better ones and enhancements made for sure. But, you know, I, I even know during my cancer journey that it wasn't the physician that let me know about the clinical trial. It was a friend of mine and, and said, hey, did you know I had the same cancer and you can do this clinical trial? And I jumped at the chance for, for two reasons, not only from sort of a selfish reason like, hey, maybe this is going to enhance my recovery. But number two is I was like, man, if I'm going to have cancer, damn you, you know, I'm going to get back at you and I'm going to I'm going to do whatever clinical trial I can to help people that are going to be following me. So I, I have the sense that there's more than enough people out there willing and wanting to do clinical trials, but we haven't done a great job on the provider side and maybe the tech side together, you know, uh, letting the, these opportunities be known. That's true. And uh, also I, I do feel that patients wait too late. You know, that's the, yeah. uh, is that, uh, and even you alluded to that, you know, so that's the general conception is that we should go to a trial when all else fails. But I, I think that approach needs to be changed yeah. uh, to, to where you have to consider the trial early or, or in your treatment journey rather than late, you know, as, as the last measure. So, yeah, let's, let's, that's super interesting. And I, and I, and I know my audience appreciates this because again, uh, you know, I was a CIO and, you know, executive and healthcare for many, many years, but never was really exposed in depth to trial clinical trials. And so I'm loving my time on the board and uh, also the opportunity to, to have you share uh, with my audience. Uh, I wonder, how do you separate your emotions? You know, you're a very empathetic person. I, I know you from meeting you in person several times now. Uh, how do you separate your emotions from the patients and not everyone makes it and you know, how do you do that? So I, that I feel like I, I have, um, the, that goes back to my, my kind of my religion and, uh, you know, so I'm a Hindu and, uh, you know, I believe in karma yoga and what karma, karma yoga is, what our Lord Krishna has told us is, you know, our job as human beings is to do our karma, which is our acts without any attachment. So you have to do what you're supposed to do, do the right thing with no expectations. So, uh, you know, so that's what I try to do, try to follow every day. So if a patient, you know, succeeds, you know, that's great. But again, I can't take credit for that. And if a patient doesn't succeed, you know, I still tried my best and I cannot be blamed for that either. You know, so I am I'm able, I, I am because, you know, very early on, you know, in an oncology practice, you know, you have to move from one room to the next. You know, you go in, you go see one patient, you give them great news or they are in remission. Uh, then, then you you have to take your smile off the face and go to the next room, and not necessarily you have to be crying, but you have to be more you know stoic and um, you know present the bad news to the next patient if that's the case. So that's that's just our profession. We just learn it. I I I think I I 
I I can handle the emotions. I mean, I don't know what else to. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always curious because you know I'd I, I'd I'd be a basket case, but again, I'm not. I don't have the training yeah. uh, that you do. Um, what what advice, Mino, would you have for clinicians who are interested in clinical trials? Right, you don't. It's not like a specialty that you you pick in residency to do clinical trials. So this is something you can adopt later in your practice. Uh, what advice do you have for for clinicians that might be interested? Uh, so. Uh, um- my general take is in in most cancers, breast cancer may be a little exception, but in most cancers, you know, if you have progressed on your first or at the most second chemotherapy regimen, then that's really the time uh, to look uh, to explore, you know, to explore the clinical trial. Um, and you know, those who are here locally, you know, are aware of our center, and I'm very easily accessible. Everybody knows how to get hold of me. Is to just reach out. Um, then you know, to doing uh, molecular profiling on uh, all cancer patients. So because based on the molecular profiling, and then if you get the report, they set a link to which clinical trials are good based on the molecular profile. So just to just to follow that. And uh, for an average clinician, you know, for a community oncologist, it's really not easy to keep keep up with all the options. So the best thing is just to refer them early to a trial center and then let physicians at the the research organization make the decision because it's really very, very difficult to, the the, the number of trials, they open, close, it's very difficult for a community oncologist to keep track of everything that's out there. Yeah. Yeah, And, you know, another comparison to my wife, you know, once she was adopted Mm -hmm. out of the village, uh, she was adopted to a a physician couple Mm -hmm. like your parents. um, And they also directed her to a Mm -hmm. clinical um, career Mm -hmm. Uh, what advice do you have for young ladies, uh, girls um, looking to medicine a, as a career? So like uh, maybe they're elementary school, junior high. What would you say to your daughter to, you know, encourage her in a medical career? Or would you uh, encourage her? <laughs> I, interesting you bring up that. So I have two daughters and uh, one is interested in uh, medicine and one is majoring in computer science. Uh, so with medicine, you know, I completely on truly love what I do. And, you know, I'm very happy with my choice of career, thanks to my dad, but it is extremely demanding. So the, the question is, are they, you know, if they love it, there's nothing like medicine in my opinion, but uh, at the same time, it is a very demanding career. So, you know, they, they have to be prepared for that. So that's, that's my only advice that it's very long hours and it never ends. You know, it's not like it, (laughs) I still have to read every day, you know, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's a constant thing. So. Yeah. What about early studies? Uh, So you mentioned uh, biology, math, you were actually good at the entire spectrum, but you know, what would you recommend a particular course of study early on? Well, if anything, I would say psychiatry. <laughs> a lot of medicine is really psych- is really psychology. Uh, so I, I would strongly encourage them to take some psychology classes, you know, during their undergrad, uh, because uh, that really plays, you know, uh, that that is, I think, of huge benefit, you know. Yeah, no, that, uh, yeah, that helps in every... Uh, in every career for sure is to have some of that. Look, our, our time went by super fast. We talked about sort of a little bit about you getting to know you and your life uh, in a remote part of India with physician parents and and your incredible mom who delivered you and then delivered a baby, another baby the same day. That's a great story. Uh, 
We talk a lot about Mary Crowley Cancer Research, where hope lives, uh, and, and your role as an executive director. That we talked deeply into clinical trials, which I love and find fascinating. And then we talked a lot of here uh, about uh, leadership and uh, you know advice for daughters getting into medicine, things like that. Um, what did we miss, or is there something we talked about that you wanted to uh, double down on? I'll give you the last word as we end our. Program. No, I think we mentioned on that. It is uh, come look. Explore clinical trials early. I would say, you know, I would say, tell cancer patients that, you know, take your health in your hands and go explore the options out there. Ask questions to your clinicians, you know, ask them if there are any clinical trial options. And, um, you know, that's the only way that we can advance science and really, you know, beat this cancer. Yeah. And I actually, I'm going to throw one more question at you because, you know, I'm, I'm writing this other book, uh, and it's not about being a cancer patient, but it's about being a patient. But it happens that both myself and my co-author are both cancer survivors. And um, so the one question is, what advice would you give a patient that's coming into the health system, let's just say cancer, since you're an oncologist, um, that doesn't have anyone to help them navigate? You know, like you would help your friends and family navigate healthcare. I do the same thing. But this is someone, just the average person the public coming in for the first time, big health system, you know, they're sick. What's a piece of advice that you would give them? And you're saying they have no, they have nobody that they can, uh, we have nurse navigators, you know, so I would, I would suggest even somebody who has absolutely nobody, all the hospital systems now have nurse navigators. So if they truly have nobody, then that's the person they should, they should reach out to. And the nurse navigators can really help them, you know, kind of, uh, walk through or almost every oncology practice also has social workers. So those would be kind of the two avenues that they should uh, go to. And then if they are in Dallas, then we have cancer uh, support community. Uh, so uh, that's another option they have. Yeah. Yeah. Those are good. Those are good pieces of advice. Uh, look out the community. There's all sorts of support groups, no matter if you have cancer or some other uh, disease state. Most larger communities uh, have that. Yes, and the navigator. So good practices, good health systems have uh, some sort of uh, program like you just described. Uh, so definitely uh, take advantage of those if you're alone. So uh, Dr. Barve, this was uh, super, super interesting. Thank you for what you do uh, for cancer patients, for Mary Crowley Cancer Research. Uh, and thank you for being a guest on our program. <laughs> thank you. It was my pleasure. Enjoyed talking to you. All right. That wraps up another edition of Digital Voices. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.